Good evening, everybody. I'm sure all of you at some point have heard Paul describe one of his sermons as being like a buffet. There's lots to take in. He doesn't expect you to eat all of it. Just sample here or there. Take some home with you. It's going to kind of be like that, but I've got less than half the time, so maybe it's more like that, uh, that Coney Island hot dog eating contest where you've got to take it all in at once. Uh, if you'd like to join me in First John chapter 2, verse 16. Glad we got that laugh out of the way. This is a heavy passage. I think it is anyway. Let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. Father, we thank you for your word and we confess that your ways are contrary to us and our natural ways. We pray that you would subdue our wills and our affections under your word and that you would help us to die to our worldly appetites. We pray that you would help us now through your word and spirit for Christ's sake. Amen. First John 2.16 reads, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. So what exactly are the things of the world? It seems like an obvious question, but... John gives a, a surprising answer, I thought. He doesn't list things that we might normally think of that are external to us, drunkenness and idolatry, pornography, and so on, but rather, he talks about a, a disposition and an affection within the man. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, these things which are part and parcel to our nature, John tells us, are not of the Father. They're from the world. The world is a part of us. And the collective desires of fallen man make the world what it is. The problem, to put it plainly, is us. It's within us. Every desire of the heart is only evil continually and desperately wicked, born into bondage under sin and into a world which can immediately begins to conform us to its normalization of sin and estrangement from God and righteousness. And so we often make the mistake of seeing the problem as being uh, merely external to us and apart from us, and external objects do tempt us and inflame our lusts, but they only have this power because of some part of us which they attract. In adjective form, the things of this world John's talking about is uh, sometimes called earthly-mindedness, so that the things of this world can be anything which causes a man or a woman to fix their desire, their will, and their effort, security, and enjoyment upon this world. This is some of the things that we desire are sinful in and of themselves, but sometimes they're things which are lawful to enjoy, taken to an unnatural level of desire. 
So what John counts as the things of this world are those things which our flesh finds appealing and prioritizes over having fellowship with God and they're accompanied by the pride of life by which I take John to mean that it's a flagrant indulging of these desires in spite of what God has said and under some notion that he wouldn't dare do anything about it. What's God going to do about it? It's those sinful attitudes and affections which, which openly defy the Lord and what he has said is good and lawful for us to enjoy, which makes everything of this present life and nothing of the life to come. It's inherited from our first mother Eve who saw that the fruit of the tree was pleasing and desirous for wisdom despite what she well knew God had commanded. It says with Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? So with that brief explanation out of the way, I've got six points here, six evidences that these things are not of the Father and not that I think you're not persuaded that the things of the world are not from the Father, but to show in what sense they are not from him and how we may know by experience that that's the case and to make us more aware of the danger presented in them. Firstly, the love of the things of this world necessarily drives a wedge between man and God since it is an inherently self-centered love. We are made to enjoy God in all things and to love and serve our fellow man, but living according to the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the pride of life seeks to enjoy all things apart from God. It sees all things as existing for the creature and its pleasure and even sees and uses other people as little more than a means to enjoy that pleasure. The things of the world are a self-centered way of living instead of a Christ-centered way of living which seeks to enjoy what is permitted with uh, temperance and restraint with praise to the Lord and seeks not to be served but to be a servant to all. Secondly, the desires of the world naturally draw us away from a desire for Christ who was not of this world and was hated by the world if the world hated Christ and the things of the world are here listed as being the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, etc., then we may understand John to be reminding us that this hatred of Christ is part of our natural frame. Our natural inclinations are away from Christ. We see nothing with our natural senses that is pleasing about Christ unless we could have it our way and make him nothing more than a servant to our desires. And we find his claims of divine authority as lawgiver and sole judge of our eternal destinies to be a stinging offense and rebuke to the pride of life. And so we know that this worldly attitude cannot in any way be from the Father who loves and glorifies his Son. who sent him to be the Word light in this world and he would have every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
Thirdly, we can see that peculiar judgments from God frequently accompanies the desires of the world in this world. And those whom the Lord gives over to them often exhaust themselves and their resources to obtain them. We all know of someone who uh, has made ruin of themselves or their families to obtain the objects of their desires. And some of us here were under that terrible judgment ourselves until God gave us grace to repent. The fruit of their increase goes to strangers and not to the building up of their own house or to the building up of the household of God or to the relief of its members. There is never enough to satisfy them. There is no price too high to obtain what they desire. You remember what Herod said to the daughter of Herodias? Ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. Even the murder of John the Baptist wasn't too great a price. Maybe you remember Shechem, who simply took first and asked questions later, and then sought to smooth over the outrage of taking the daughter of Jacob by force, saying, ask whatever bride price you will of me, and I'll pay it. Those who are not content to enjoy what the Lord has given them with the heart of gratitude and praise often lose what they do have in the pursuit of what they lost after. And what a sad account they'll have to give of themselves when the books are opened on the day of reckoning. Fourthly, and those who once have their minds set upon earthly lusts, which are beyond their reach, nonetheless are often given over to a form of obsessive insanity that clouds out good judgment. Think of the wretched men of Sodom who, not minding the loss of the sight of their eyes, still attempted to force their way into Lot's house so that they may defile themselves with his guests. These people pursue what they cannot have and what the Lord has commanded that they must not have. They miss out on all other goods that they might enjoy even the grace of the gospel, salvation bought and paid for, all good things in Christ, even an eternal inheritance in the world to come, freely given in Christ. They care nothing for a crucified Christ if they could only have the things that they covet. Uh, yes, a terribly deceptive sin is, I hear you say, and I believe you. But this judgment sometimes goes under the name of self-righteousness. And some of the greatest feats of religious zeal are committed by those who simply want to be well thought of by the world. These people also care nothing for the fact that the way into God's presence stands wide open if they would forsake the pride and desire of their flesh. And these are, are, these both are to say nothing of the even stranger and utterly bizarre judgment and the misery of desiring the wealth and honor and good appraisal of the world, yet also being cursed with an extraordinary laziness. The pride of life makes these people long to be somebody, but the desire of their flesh says, but maybe tomorrow I'll just sit in the lazy boy and complain that nobody gets me. Uh, 
You laugh at that, or maybe you should. That's sad and pathetic, but laziness is no joke. Any one of us could slide into it. Most other sins require energy, opportunity, some clever scheme, maybe a co-conspirator, but all that laziness requires is any old excuse in a comfy chair. Have a sit down. You've earned it. You can praise God just fine from the recliner. You'll remember Jeremiah's last devotional. If you ever catch yourself talking like that, you should hear the Lord calling after you, you fool! Go look at the ant. He knows what time it is. That one's for free. Moving on, the fifth point is that the regular and constant temptation of the flesh is to enthrone its own appetites and sensuality in place of God's word. It prioritizes what it can see, smell, taste, and hold, and not the promises and judgments of God. The promises of God, while not entirely invisible in this present age, yet seem weak and undesirable compared to the things of this world. And the judgments of God seem long in coming. Paul said of the pagans that their stomach is their God. And poor Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew. Samson surrendered his divine strength to enjoy a peaceful dalliance with his Philistine harlot. Those who are of the Father know that they do not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from his mouth. They know that he gives that which we need, and it's time so that we may pursue his kingdom without worry that we will suffer any unnecessary need. Lastly, in the transition to our applications, we know that those who are Christ's, those who are of the Father, Do not pamper and indulge their flesh, but daily crucify it with its affections and lusts. They regularly practice the mortification of their flesh. And scripture calls this the plucking out of the right eye and the cutting off of the right hand so that they separate themselves from the offending members that threaten to strengthen earthly mindedness in them. So to that end, and quickly here, (laughs) here are seven applications to help us in the practice of mortifying the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Firstly, and most importantly, unless God the Holy Spirit cleanses the house and takes his dwelling there, this warning prevails us for nothing. The earthly mind is the natural habitation of worldly desires, and they cannot be evicted from that mind except the Spirit of God occupy it and fill it with heavenly desires. And even then, he must regularly eject worldly lusts like a landlord ejects squatters. So if you are persuaded that all that is in the world, the desires of your flesh and the desires of your eyes and the pride of life are not of this world, or excuse me, are of this world and are not of the Father, then pray that the Holy Spirit would come and give you new desires and conform your mind to God's word. Second, meditate frequently on the fact that these things are passing away with the world, but the payment that you'll give for their pursuit is eternal. 
Their enjoyment, if enjoyed, they can be, will be momentary, but the pouring out of God's wrath will be an unending torment. And here's a question the Apostle Paul asked of the Romans, which is helpful towards this meditation. What gain did you have in those things of which you are now ashamed anyway? The end of those things is death. Conversely, think about what a sweet and eternal joy is secured for those who set their will and affections on heavenly things. And that the narrow road and narrow gate by which the saints enter into heaven is not wide enough to accommodate both themselves and their earthly desires and the pride of life. Fourthly, consider in the moment of desire and temptation that indulging the lusts of the flesh will not satisfy the flesh, but will only fuel its burning within you and strengthen its ability to overtake you. Your parents know well enough that indulging the outbursts of your children doesn't make the problem go away, but only encourages further tantrums. Your earthly desires will throw such tantrums against the spirit's inclination in your heart. Giving in to them only makes future occasions all the more difficult to overcome, especially if the thing goes undetected by others. The pride of life will steadily persuade you that the danger is not so terrible. The thing's not hidden from the Lord. There you'll be stuck on the horns of a dilemma either to be given over to your own devices by the Lord, or if he has mercy to restore you to your senses, you may suffer long under the pain of conviction forever giving in to the things of this world. If you've fallen into some secret sin, I pray the Lord would expose the thing by any means and deliver you from the grips of this world. Each day it continues You'll grow more and more insensible to the danger that you are in, like the proverbial frog in the boiling pot. Even if it's a matter of great sin and foolishness, prefer to confess it to someone immediately rather than be given over to a hardened heart. Fifthly, pray that the Lord would not lead you into temptation, but deliver you from evil. And give praise for his merciful providence by which he himself works to tear down your earthly pride. Our God is a loving father. And he does not do anything unless, anything less than what is necessary for our growth in our new spiritual calling. And to wean and alienate us from this world. Even as we are heading, head, running headlong to do evil, he sets some boundary around us to prevent us from going so far. He sometimes overturns our earthly plans and dashes to pieces our greatest expectations or sends some disaster or another our way and all of it is little enough to teach us to not hope in this world and to destroy the pride of life in us. And pray that the Lord would do this work in your life and welcome all the things which your flesh groans against as nothing less than your Father answering your prayer to not expose you to sin and temptation, but to deliver you from your evil inclinations by any and all means necessary. Sixthly, consider often, as the Apostle Paul had, that you have been crucified to this world with Christ and that the things of this world are dead to you. Anyone who's smelled something that's been lying 
dead for a while knows that it's a horrible putrid smell. The first thing you want to do is get away from it as far as possible. We pray that the Lord would make the things of this world which carry the stench of death about them to be immediately revolting to you. And that only the aroma of life as found in the things of Christ would be suitably present, pleasant to your new sensibilities. Seventh and lastly, finally, set a guard over your eyes and ears and take care of how they wander and what they rest on. I'm not going to set out here any particular rules that God's not been pleased to prescribe in his own word about how you spend your discretionary time or anything like that, but I do recommend that you take up the practice of Job, who made a covenant with his eyes and was righteous before God. Take care of what you see and what you hear. Take care of what you put before others. You don't know what desires war against them in their heart. Take care that you do not find yourself careless and unvigilant, for you do not know at what moment or what matter will give your flesh occasion to rise against you. And take care about the company you keep, especially keep far away from flatterers and indulgers. In Puritan John Flavel said, It's a dangerous crisis when a proud heart meets with flattering lips. It is safer still, as we heard today, to be covenanted with others who are committed to a mutual goal of dying to the world and living to Christ. Two are better than one. Find some person you know who has the boldness and wisdom to provide you with faithful and timely reproofs and rebukes. And if these things are difficult for you to bear, as they often are, pray for the meekness and humility have the wherewithal to consider whether it is your new nature which is pushing back against them or if it's just the things of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that we do not consider ourselves by it enough, that we have been wise in our own eyes and have been content to be good by this world's standards. We pray that you would make us to rest our whole trust in Christ and in his righteousness. That we would look to you for our provision and to be content with it. We pray that your spirit would aid us in our fight against our flesh and our worldly desires. That we would not give in to them, but that we would live pleasing and blameless before you. We pray that you would... Help us in all of these things, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.